That Triathlon Show 414. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview David Lippmann. Dave's background and experience across many different realms is quite fascinating so I'll just leave it to his introduction to actually talk about that. But uh, long story short, him and I first connected a couple of years ago and as Dave is somebody with his finger on the pulse of a lot of things in science and practice of endurance sports, I thought that we should just turn one of our off-air chats into an on-air podcast which is what we've tried to do here with a number of different topics that we felt would be interesting and relevant to discuss so we'll get right into, into that after thanking our sponsors form the form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including splits pace stroke rate and heart rate this means that you can execute your swim workouts better and get a better idea of your ability to hold certain paces and stroke rates and understand when and why you start to slow down the best thing is that you can see and interpret this data in real time in the session so it's actually actionable and can help you right then and there. Also it adds more fun and engagement to swim training which might make you look forward to your swim sessions in a completely different way than before. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time. It is a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. And it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch and your power and isolate them more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back and you can get 20% off your first order on senatesintrain.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, let's get into the interview with David Lippmann. Welcome to that triathlon show, Dave. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you, Michael. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Can you start by giving us an introduction to yourself? Just, yeah, I, this is a tough one. I get asked this a bit. I guess my background, I started in exercise physiology. I did an exercise physiology degree and then a podiatry degree with that. You know, coached a bunch during that time and you know, coached my first, my first sport when I was 17 and sort of progressed through that. Ended up going into medicine through a sports medicine route. Was working as a doctor for a while. And then, yeah, moved countries to the, you know, for my wife, do all those things. And yeah, now I live in, in London, despite the accent and yeah, work in tech, do some podcasting. And I sort of consider myself a bit of a, a specialist generalist when asked. And I sort of sit in that space between health and performance, I guess. That's kind of the, the area I like to occupy. So I'm going to ask you to go into some, some more specifics there. So uh, let's start with the podcast. What, what are the podcasts that you're involved in? So I work, as I said, I work in tech for a company called Super Sapiens, it's a sort of continuous glucose monitor company for athletes. And I, I sort of I produce and, and host their podcast. And then in addition to that, I do a podcast with Matt Fox from Sweat Elite. I think he's a previous guest of yours. Yeah. Uh, and we do that on running. So it's called Pro Running News. And then I've got another little other project that I can't mention exactly what it is yet, but around December, it should be in, in public. And I'd say that your your fans are probably... Uh, we'll hear that podcast, recognize my voice and be like, oh, that's the project he was talking about. So I can't say too much more than that. Um, well, that's exciting stuff. We'll keep tabs on that for sure. And 
Yeah, in terms of your own athletic, but not background, but what you're currently up to, you're you're running a lot. Yeah, I guess. So I ran track in high school, loved it. Was never really that good. I was sort of trying to be a middle distance runner. I wasn't. Yeah, wasn't that good. I finished school. My coach stopped coaching. I got into working as a strength and conditioning coach, and so got into lifting heavy things. And you know, you're an 18 year old, 17 year old male, so that's what you do. I ended up doing quite a bit of that, competing in some Olympic weightlifting. Again, not great as a as an athlete, but enjoyed it. I did a little bit of powerlifting for a while, found my way back to running. And then, you know, as a 20-something year old, started running a little bit longer distances, half marathons, marathons. So I was doing a lot of trail running when I was living in Australia. And then when I moved to the Netherlands, I started running a bit more road stuff and then kept going with that. I ended up running, you know, some of the majors, Boston, Berlin, London, etc. And then, yeah, moved to London and trying to get back into a bit more trail running now. But yeah, run some ultras on trail. I uh, run many of the marathons and, and trying to get faster, I guess. And when you say that you, you're working in the intersection of health and performance, how did you how did you end up there? How, what is the path that took you? Because as a, as a medical doctor, what led you to not work directly in medicine as a doctor, but working tech and so on. And and can you just talk a little bit more about that path? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I started in performance. So I was working as a sports coach, strength and conditioning coach, and was, was heavily leaning that way. And I got some good advice from a, a mentor of mine who said, listen, you need to make yourself in, in community level sport, especially in Australia, there's not a lot of budget. So the more indispensable you can make yourself, the better off you'll be. So go upskill in different areas. So, you know, if they have to travel with only one person, if you've got multiple skills, you'll be the one they take. So I started doing some sort of first aid sports medicine stuff on the side, which then led me down the route of more and more medical stuff. And look, I was studying podiatry as well. So it was in that field, but ended up getting heavily involved with Sports Medicine Australia, entering medicine and practicing as a doctor for a while. And I was working clinically, to be honest, and sort of had half stepped out of coaching, but was still interested in still coaching a couple athletes on the side, friends of mine and and, and writing my own programs. I've been self-coached for the majority of my career if you can call it that when you're not very good. But, and then I guess when I moved to the Netherlands, I had the option to keep practicing medicine, but decided against it because it was very difficult from a language standpoint. Ironically, I speak Dutch. It's just not good, quite good enough. It would need to be professional competency. So then started looking for other things, got back into some coaching. And then I guess when I started working in tech and, and thinking about myself more and more, it's kind of like, well, where is your skill set lie? And it, I have interest in both performance and health. So then you naturally find a niche that suits you, I guess. So that's kind of why I describe myself that way and and where the most of the projects I'm working on sit somewhere in that space, I guess. But the, the projects you're working on are mostly with tech, various tech companies, maybe other companies, but not so much coaching individual athletes or people at the moment. Yeah, I mean, coaching... I probably love problem solving more than anything. So the writing of the program, solving of that problem is great. The execution of it and the support, I don't know if I give enough to. Like I, I get very involved in coaching and and really if I'm going to take somebody on properly and they're going to pay me and I'm, we're going to engage in a proper relationship, like that's a lot of commitment. And I don't, I'm not really in a space to do that at the moment. I don't think I'm the best person for that a lot. I'm happy to give people thoughts, advice, consult, those sort of things, but and, and then solve those problems. And that's where I get really excited. And then the execution of it is less exciting to me. It's probably why I stepped out of strength and conditioning was that on the ground coaching in the gym, I enjoyed that interaction with the people, but I found it the mechanics of it a little bit boring versus the writing of the program, which I love. So I kind of, that's probably why I'm not coaching as much as I could. But look, I've got a couple of friends who ask opinions, some people who I give advice to, some people who come with questions, and some people who I, you know, give big picture programming to. I've got a friend who's recently started half marathoning, for instance, and it's like, all right, well, here's the rough 
stuff you should be doing and he'll send me a couple of texts every now and again and I respond to him. But but he's an exercise physiologist. So the level of input he needs is pretty low. He just needs some running specific advice through a lens he understands. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I mean, you and I have talked off air a little bit about, you know, some training stuff and and given some thoughts. And that's probably the extent of what I do for most people at the best, not claiming any of your success, by the way, because it's uh, it's been impressive and not to do with me. No, but I was going to say that yeah, definitely you're somebody that that I feel like if I wanted an opinion on something, one of the people that I that I reach out to, and and it's always really good to to chat. I think that's a really good point for people who are self coached. Like, is have a group of people you can bounce ideas off, because it's something that I've definitely felt value in for myself. There's a f- handful of people I would reach out to and ask questions of in a similar vein, which is if you are self coached, you need someone to bounce ideas off. So, so have a group of people you trust and you can ask questions of and, and be there for other people if you are a coach, I, I, I recommend. Yeah, no, 100%. So let's dive into the first topic for today other than the, the introduction, which is something you actually did an episode of on Pro Running News. And uh, it's a recent publication that was published by a big group of authors. I think it must have been 15 authors or more, yeah. potentially. The evolution of world-class endurance training, the scientist's view on current and future trends. Even uh, Sandbach was the first author on, on that paper, but there are many recognizable names there. So yeah, let's can we can we start by discussing that one? As you have done a full episode on it, I'll let you just give uh, give give the listeners a brief overview of what, what it entailed. I guess they, they interviewed a bunch of sports scientists, coaches, and, and sort of asked what they thought the evolution, like what had changed in the last 10 to 15 years, and then potential forecasting about what's going to change in the next handful of years, the next five years or so. And I think it's just a really cool way to do it is to get not one person's thoughts, but getting a group and then trying to find some consensus in there. Because I mean, that's how I try and find, I guess, I don't want to call it truth, but perhaps signal in some of the noise in a lot of things I do, be it a, a recipe that I'm cooking is let's go find five people who cook this, find what they all do the same, find what they do differently. You know, find the things that, that are common and, and different and then make some decisions between that. And I think it's a cool way to solve this problem, which is what's actually changing, not what is this person changing. And they, you know, they find a handful of things. I think the sports-specific demand stuff, so better understanding of that was big for me because I think that's that really resonated with me in my lens of being an, a strength and conditioning coach and having this what's the end in mind and let's really specify towards that. I guess they also said sort of better understanding of sports-specific demands, which is is pretty similar uh, they talked about improved competition execution, and I think we're seeing this through a mix of things, be it travel constraints of the actual event. So understanding what Tokyo Olympics was going to bring from our heat, time zone, all those things, not just how do I compete well once, but how do I do that over multiple days. The larger training loads, that sort of hinted at as well, so larger, more specific training loads. And I think probably the easiest way to explain that is, is in three words, is the Norwegian system, so to speak. And, and your listeners would be familiar, which is just how do we increase training load and how do we quantify training load better? Improved training quality is, is something else they mentioned. And, and that's a funny one because I think probably that hinges on a better understanding of what you're trying to achieve more than anything else. And then I guess a more professional, healthier lifestyle. I think that's probably true ongoing. As a, I think we're probably at the limit of that where we'll see the improvement in that now. I think if you look back 30 or 40 years, we'd say that's for sure, right? And you saw sports people smoking at halftime or whatever. And then that evolves a little bit and they maybe stop smoking at halftime and now it's just post-game. And then all of a sudden it becomes, okay, yeah, now we don't smoke because we're athletes and now now our diet's a concern and now we're sleeping. And I think we're probably at a rough ceiling for that stuff because I think to speak a little bit to the, the sort of space between health and performance, we're probably at a place where 
some of the stuff we're doing from a performance standpoint is not healthy. We're optimizing health outside of that, but now some of the stuff we're doing is not healthy. And perhaps diet is the easiest one here is, you know, Michael Phelps is the classic example of all of the pizza he ate or whatever because of the caloric density he needed. So at that point, yes, the swimming is as a concept healthy, but the diet required to sustain it is not healthy, right? So I think that's probably sort of the ceiling we're at. So those are the, the trends I sort of highlighted in the last 10 to 15 years. I'm interested to see, to hear your thoughts on that and, and what, what you've seen from your point of view, given that's probably, it's, it's right in your coaching realm, right? And, and yeah. you're very much in this. I think the training quality that you mentioned is an interesting one and, and it kind of blends into the the higher training loads because it's not it doesn't mean training harder, doing more intervals. It means understanding, as you say, kind of un- understanding what the goals are. And the and the goals would often be more consistent consistently sustainable, but you want to make the larger training loads more sustainable in many cases so the training quality kind of falls into that so it actually often means i mean the norwegian system is one example of that which which entails just maybe not doing as much high intensity but being very specific with with the intensity they're doing in order for them to be able to do high quality training day in day out and and with really high volumes like they're not doing polarized training where like 80 percent of the training is low intensity necessarily they're they're doing a lot of work in that kind of threshold zone between lt1 and lt2 so so that's that's an interesting one that i see from a coaching perspective and and it and it also can align in in triathlon it very often does in long distance triathlon with understanding the race specific demands and so if you're if you're an elite athlete and you're training for Ironman or half Ironman or Olympic distance, they're all in that LT1 to LT2 area. So, so that's, and, and many, of course, many other endurance events are also fall in that. There are some that are, are not like the, maybe the very, the shorter distances on the track and, and swimming and so on. But, but those are a few things that come to mind for me or came to mind for me when, when I looked into this paper and that, yeah, made, made sense to me basically. Yeah. And I think, like the elephant in the room is, you know, the influence of technology in general on those aspects probably facilitates many of them, right? You can better characterize what's required when you have better insights. So 10 to 15 years probably isn't long enough to say that's around the time of GPS watches becoming uh, ubiquitous, but I think it's it's there or thereabouts maybe. 2000 and f- like, yeah, probably 2008. I mean, I got my first GPS watch in I think 2010, 2011. So, you know, it's there or thereabouts when people started to be able to better quantify what they were doing, be it that their 10-mile run became more like a a 14-kilometer run, and so they understood that better, or whether it was that, you know, they understood their actual pace now or something like that. So, and, and heart rate as well, I guess, within that and overlaying that data set. I mean, that stuff is so ubiquitous these days. There's almost nobody who's not using one of those watches, even, you know, a sort of so-called hobby jogger or something like this would have a some variety of GPS watch. Maybe it's an Apple watch or whatever, but... Just understanding the impact that has in terms of quantifying of loads, understanding of constraints, and and being able to progress, right? Even from a motivational standpoint, is is pretty big. Yeah, yeah, and I think some of the other things that that you mentioned there with better rate execution in terms of everything around it and so on, those are definitely at the highest level things that that are already done really, really well. But but equally, I f- feel that maybe some of those areas are, and health, like just thinking about something like sleep, if you go to the layer of athletes just slightly below the top, top, top athletes, that's where you find 
larger discrepancies with some some doing it really really well and for some it's more of an after afterthought so i think that those are areas that i mean in if we look back in 10 15 years from now maybe all of the athletes that are let's say of that sub world class level will also be doing really really well because otherwise they just won't be at that level anymore it will be required but but now i still feel like there's some variation there even at a fairly high level yeah it feels a little bit like f1 where there's like a trickle down sort of effect and i think you know the 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 ability to spread information and ideas is significant and you know it's something that this podcast is a good example right think about the content you've got on this podcast and who you've got speaking to people those researchers for the most part are inaccessible to the average athlete and and their advices as well and it it helps the researchers to get their their research out because that's ultimately what they want to do but it helps the athlete as well and the coach so i think that can't be discounted as part of the evolution here as well as the ability to spread information, share it, learn from each other, learn from other people's mistakes. So I think we're iterating much quicker. I also start, what tends to happen in sport, and I've seen this repeatedly at different levels of sport is when a sport is new, and let's be honest, triathlon's 20-something years old in terms of Olympics and you know, really the popularity of long-distance triathlon really kicking off. When a, when a triathlon or when a sport is new, talent usually wins because no one's really doing a great job of training. Then there's a period of professionalization where those who train better start to win. And then once that all evens out, then it becomes talent again, whatever talent is, whatever we want to call that, but the best genetics or, or whatever, right? Those aspects generally create the outliers early and then it becomes the field gets leveled and those who train better might be succeeding more. And then everyone's training about at the limits and then it becomes a talent thing again. And that's much more evident in more physiologically based sports, things like endurance sports versus team sports where the tactical technical aspects are slightly more impactful. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I want to come back to something just to clarify for the listeners that this paper is not a summary of like just the the science itself. We're talking about scientists, but it's these are the scientists here are all applied scientists working directly with coaches of various federations and 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 elite coaches, elite athletes. So so it's more looking at what is happening in the real world and then writing a scientific paper about it. It's not about summarizing studies, intervention studies or anything like that that has been done. Yeah, this is trying to codify and I guess science wash, so to speak, the art of of what's happening at the at the coal phase for some of these athletes, I guess. Yeah. And they they point to some potential future trends that they see might coming up. So do you want to run us through those? Yeah. I mean they talk about more extensive and advanced technological monitoring. And I think I think we're probably there for a lot of athletes already, with the exception of a few who are intentionally bucking that trend a little bit. I think where we're probably going to see is the influence of AI overlaying on top of that, which scares some coaches, but I actually think it'll just free them up, to be honest, and the, the art of coaching and the soft science of coaching will, will be will be better there. The heat and altitude stuff, I think we will see. So they, they mentioned that more precise use of heat and altitude. And I think, again, thinking about where we're at, which is quantifying everything, repeated measures, quantifying, whether you want to call that biohacking or whatever else, I think we'll start to do more of that and people will start to appreciate their response more and individualization and adaptation timelines. And that'll come through a mixture of improved tracking, big data, but also probably some consumerization of this. You know, it's something like, you know, there are already consumer-based blood tests you can get, right? I think these will become more widely spread and cheaper and that scale will help people to start to understand the science says this about heat or the science says this about altitude at a population level. But for me as an individual, what does that actually mean? And how do I apply that to me? So I think we'll start to get there. 
then they also talk about better understanding of athlete equipment interactions. And, you know, the easiest one here to explain is aero position for cyclists, right? We'll just get better and better at understanding that as- aspect. And maybe the other one is carbon shoes. And I know you've had some researchers on here and, and I love the episodes talking about how do we choose a carbon shoe right? or, or how do we do that? And you can use a power meter to do that now. You don't even need to be in a lab to some degree. So I think we'll start to get to that, which is not just what does a shoe do on a population level or what does it do, to, what do these type of shoes do, but what does this specific shoe do to me as an individual? And I think that's where it's really important, especially with something like shoes, because there can be some non-responders, but there can also be negative responders. And so I think that you know that's quite big. And then a greater emphasis on preventing illness and injuries. I think, I don't know if we can do more of that. I think we'll just probably get better at it. And maybe some people could do more of it, but I think if you're not doing this, then I think you're mad. The best correlates I've seen across all sport to success is injury-free time. Time free, time free of injuries is the best correlate to success in a medium to the long-term time frame. So I just, you should be doing everything you can to avoid injury and illness. Is my my take on this, and it's why I'm so risk averse in my own training. If you look at my training, you'd be quite surprised at how conservative it is, given how tech, like how much of a technophile I am. I'm pretty conservative with coaching and training and I'm so risk averse with the stuff. And maybe it's the lens of the medical practitioner who's seen these injuries, but I just think success can be quite hard to quantify, particularly on a sort of short-term timeline, but failure is really easy. And in my mind, that's that's injury. So uh, that's kind of how I, I view the the situation. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a great point. I think maybe it comes back to what you said as well with we're doing Everybody's aware of that, how important that is, but maybe we'll get better at just figuring out individually, okay, just like with altitude or with heat, what is my limit? What is my tolerance? And, and that's maybe, maybe where we can still make advancements and potentially even technology and AI can help, can help with that. So, so that would be yeah. interesting to see, but let's see how, how it plays out. But I, I do agree that, yeah, you're mad if you're not <laughs> putting that as a primary focus, because that's from the day, from day one of this podcast, all of the, the coaches that have been on here have been talking about, yeah, staying injury free, saying, staying illness free as much as you can and, and how that's like such a great, the most fundamental pillar of building success. Yeah, and we might see something like the integration of gate kinematic or gate data, kinematics and kinetic data from, say, power meters to look at risk of musculoskeletal injury, right? We're using big big data models for certain things. And that's foreseeable. And I'm sure there's a company doing it. I don't think I came up with that idea. So yeah, like that sort of stuff we'll see and, and maybe it'll help and you'll have to read through the signal and that noise at some point. But I think we'll get to see some really interesting stuff. And then it's about, you know, similar to the acute to chronic workload ratio stuff is what does that actually mean for you and how do you action that advice, right? And I think we've all probably seen something on social media recently of, you know, the physio talking to the runner and the physio is like, listen, you can't, you can't do any running and the runner like runs out the the clinic to go do the interval session or whatever. So, I mean, you have to act on the advice as well. So yeah, there's that. And the, the one other thing that I think I wanted to touch on from the paper is they mention updating sports science programs. And as somebody who's taught in you know sports science programs at three or four universities, I think this is needed. I think increasingly at universities in general, but definitely in sports science, theory is not as helpful as it used to be. And knowledge isn't as valued as, use, as it used to be as valuable. Uh, you know, your, your phone has more knowledge in it than, than you, you could ever have. And your phone is more powerful than some of the computers we had in World War II. So, so I don't think the learning of facts is as helpful as it used to be but i think the application of those facts and and reasoning and sifting and sorting data becomes more and more important and sifting and sorting through whatever becomes more important so i'd love to see these sports science programs updated and you know my bias is then 
to include a lot more tech. So, you know, those sort of things I think makes a ton of sense. To be fair, the, the programs I taught in and, and was involved with had some really good tech that was involved. You know, we were using force plates in the early 2000s. So there was some cool stuff that I got to see and do there. So that stuff is now consumer grade, right? There are companies who have force decks out there and, and that's really cool to see come from a university setting all the way back in. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So let's move on to the next question, which is, I mean, you, maybe you can tell the listeners you have I've spent time with some of the best triathletes in the world and, and you have talked with a lot of them through your podcast and, and so on. But so you're not a triathlete yourself, but you follow triathlon very keenly and, and you are a v- very knowledgeable about endurance sports in general and about triathlon. So when you look into triathlon and you look at what people are doing which you do know and you do look at that what are the things that you would maybe change in how a lot of athletes approach something that we might call typical triathlon training thanks well i appreciate the compliments triathlon fan for sure eagerly watched world championships both of them and and had some views there that i shared with you not so much about the athletes as much as the coverage but that's for a different day look i've also been friends with triathlon triathletes you know going through university podiatry programs fundamentally full of people who run and some of them are runners and some of them are triathletes and you know most of them when i was going through were triathletes so i think probably the biggest observation i've I've always had and look i trained for a triathlon once and, and never did it so i have the smallest tiniest little bit of insight but my lens is through a strength and conditioning lens and that lens is what are the goals? What's the end point that we need to get to and how do we reverse engineer from there? A lot of endurance coaches go, where are we? And let's apply my program and then see where we get to. And I'm sort of the opposite way, which is where do we need to get to? And let's apply a program that, that gets us there. And I think this is changing. Let's let's be clear. I don't want to paint everyone with one brush and I don't want to paint them all with that, but that's kind of the the backdrop and context. But one of the things that I also use as like a weak point analysis or a SWOT analysis really clearly. And one of the things that everybody tells me about all levels of triathlon is that running off the bike is one of the hardest things you ever do is you feel terrible. It feels strange. It's really hard to get going and those sort of things. And I always found it strange then, particularly in the context of Olympic distance, that people spent so much time on the bike when it was only 40 kilometers and they didn't do a lot of running off the bike. And it always just astounded me that if you're telling me that the hardest bit is running off the bike and only 40 kilometers of cycling. Why are you doing any sessions where you're not running at least a kilometer after you ride? Like do less riding, run a kilometer off the bike and, and do that. And of course, look, logistics and, and life and all those things. But it always struck me as strange, the volume of biking that Olympic distance athletes did, which makes more sense for a long distance triathlon, of, of course. But then the lack of run bike or sort of bike run brick sessions particularly. And and that, I think that probably holds some truth in long distance triathlon as well as the lack of brick sessions there that that still surprises me given how hard people can find running off the bike so when we plan we're planning this episode and we talked about this question you said that uh, i was you you would be happy for me to counter some of your points so this one yeah this one i i do have yeah I, i do think that what is what you see is typical i do think it makes sense actually so i'm kind of i yeah i would counter that point quite a bit like to some extent i think that I actually think that most people don't find it that hard running off the bike. It does get hard later on, but that's more of a pacing issue, sometimes a nutrition or hydration issue. But but I don't feel like it's that common other than in maybe beginners that are doing their first triathlons that that you get off the bike and, and you just 
cannot run if you have paced the bike well so so my my philosophy there is that yeah you do need to do a couple of runs of the bike in the lead up to a race but and and it is as much to assess your pacing and your nutrition hydration as as it is to train just the let's say the biomechanical or the physical aspects of of running off the bike but the reason that i think that a lot of people don't do a lot of brick runs is just because of injury prevention and this is something that i had a discussion with another coach recently and he mentioned having taken on several athletes recently from a particular school of thought of coaching where actually running off the bike is a very integral part of of that coaching philosophy and and how stress fractures of various kinds i think he mentioned i may be wrong about this but i I think he mentioned hip stress fractures is very common interesting uh, in in that population so just the fact of running off the bike maybe running with a slightly altered form too much and and and, but i think as much as as important is probably the fact that when you're running off the bike then you're often running in in a glycogen depleted state and, and we have seen recently quite a bit of research about the impact of that on markers of bone health so yep. so i think that that's the injury prevention is the big reason that people people don't do it the second one that is cited is that well you can if you run off the bike then you can't do as good of a quality qualitative session like yeah okay running one kilometer to feel to to get to feel for the run i think that's that's really nothing so it doesn't really it's it's not a session and it maybe doesn't take away from doing a proper session later when you're fresh on the run but i think when when we're comparing what some people might do which is let's say seven or eight times one kilometer off the bike at at a hard race pace then the argument is that well you would get more bang for buck by doing that as a standalone session but yeah i think i think it's more of a strengths weakness analysis as you say that if if you're somebody for whom yeah it is a struggle as you not in the later stages but in the earlier stages of running off the bike then yeah you do need to practice that but maybe what you find is that practicing it leads you to figure out what is actually going on maybe it's a bike fit issue as well it could be a bike yeah. fit issue and you you figure out that oh that's where where the problem is because you can try to do it off of different types of bikes do it off the road bike do it off the, top of the triathlon bike so yeah th- those are some some thoughts that i have about it yeah i mean we saw christian blumenfeld right change bike positions and then with cramping in his pto stuff so like that that's a real problem as you said and and i think that's a really good answer and and again in a hierarchy of decision making if i've told you that the top of my like the the bottom or the the most important part of my decision making pyramid is injury free then yeah if it's a problem don't run off the bike 100% and look if you i'm absolutely not advocating or wouldn't think that you should be doing long exhaustive bike sessions followed by long exhaustive runs it's more about like hey if if those first 3 400 meters make you feel horrible and it's a real struggle point for you then think about doing three or 400 meters every now and again off yeah. the bike more frequently so that specific skill or that aspect of it is improved or, or at least you're you're comfortable with it you feel okay about it and you're kind of like yeah this is where we are yeah i think that makes sense to be honest because and but that's just that's the kind of training that uh, yeah that that hasn't been done i think traditionally people don't run that short off the bike i mean rarely like it's yeah. usually at, at the minimum let's say 10, 10 minutes which isn't necessarily that much longer but it's still it's still a bit longer and if you do 10 minutes it would often be 10 minutes at race pace or nine minutes at race pace and one minute warm down so so it's still yeah it's still a, a lot more significant than than just 300 meters to try to get into your flow but or even one kilometer so yeah, yeah i think i think that the, the it's definitely a good point and especially if, if you are struggling with that then, then that makes yeah sense. 
well, it just comes down to my thoughts that like people look at endurance sports like they're in a, they're a physiology problem, and to some degree they are. But a lot of it is actually you, you could use a different lens, which is skill. So if you look at triathlon as a skill, the skill is a mixture of things. It includes aspects or, or from a skill lens. You would say things like transitions, right? And everyone talks, okay, transitions are the the third leg, and now we've got the fourth leg, which is nutrition, of course. But you, you would talk about other things like running off the bike you know, the, the transitions, like what does that transition look like in different races for you? Do you need to be able to run barefoot on concrete for a period of time? Do you need to be able to run on sand for a period of time? All these little things that we sort of probably don't think too much of and, and may not make a big difference, right? They really probably don't to your average age grouper. But if you're towards a pointy end or you want to, you're worried about cutoff times or something like that, that there might be some, some stuff you really need to think about there, or they could be the genesis of a problem later on. You know, if you're having to run an extended period of time, like I was watching Kona and they've got quite a long run in transitions, particularly from T1 to T2. And it's like, well, if you're not ready for that, that could cause you problems at the back end of your run perhaps if you've had to run a bunch of time barefoot somewhere. So I just think using a bit of a lens of that, you know, how are you going to take nutrition on the bike? How are you going to switch nutrition on the bike? How are you going to pick up nutrition? Like I saw Taylor Nib with a bottle in her mouth. Like things like this where it's like a real skill aspect of it is how am I going to execute properly? I think if you use that lens, it might change some of the way you do things because then ultimately what it boils down to is, I don't need to be able to run a marathon. I need to be able to run a marathon off the bike after a swim. And then it becomes about, you know, am I over biking and all those questions that you really do have from a physiological standpoint. But it, if you use a skill lens, it, it changes how the problem looks, I guess. Yeah, 100% agree with, with, with that. And I, I think that, like, this is something that, especially for age groupers, like transitions, I think they they do make a we a massive difference in the sense that even if you're not like quite at the point the end wherever you are in the field we train very hard and and if when we have a few years of triathlon training in our bodies already then improvements are hard to come by so you're gaining 5 minutes off of your let's say half ironman time is is quite it takes quite a lot of training or good training to do that and and good execution but then you do see a lot of people just give that up without even thinking about it in transitions and and sometimes even a lot more than five minutes like there, there are definitely cases of people take five minutes in each transition or six minutes in each transition when when it could be done in in two and a half three minutes ironman transitions are generally quite long for age groupers because there's so many people there so they're not the 30 second transitions that we might see at uh, the world triathlon level but but still in a lot of races you could you could get them done in under three minutes and and you see people taking five six seven eight minutes in in just one transition so so that's i i completely agree with the skill aspect same thing with the the bike how how are you carrying your nutrition have you practiced having the bottle behind your saddle so you can get it out and get it yep. back there? Do you lose time actually doing that? Would you? Would it make more sense to have a camelback in your tri suit and, and be able to just drink continuously? There are good yep. two liter camelbacks that I can recommend, and uh, that's that takes you a long way. There's yeah, there's just a lot of skill skill elements that I completely agree. We we don't think about them as much as we should. We think about it. The trend the trend is to think about triathlon as a physiology problem. Yeah, but it's it's definitely there's a lot of skills going into it as well. Yeah, I mean, I thinking about so so one of the things that people might do is what co- what nutrition is going to be on course and can I take that? And that's a really smart way to do it. The other way might be how do I make myself so resilient that I don't have a problem with any nutrition? And I'm pretty confident in all of that stuff. And some people will never get there, but how can you create that for yourself and create like an anti-fragility in that aspect or a robustness there? 
I'm thinking to, to some of my experiences in trail running and some decision making I made wrong, right? So not stopping to fill an extra water bottle and then getting caught out because I don't have enough water or not taking an extra bit of fuel and then making and then making a mistake there and, and bonking a little bit, right? And this has happened to me in trail races and I'm not talking decades ago, I'm talking about months ago. So, so decision making is part of it as well is how do you make these decisions and, and in what context? Do you have rules for yourself? Do you just fill up every time? You know, what's the story there? And, and looking at that, correlation into the elite area uh, utmb which is now owned by ironman so it's okay to talk about it on a triathlon podcast the transition times historically or not transition but aid station time used to be long people used to take minutes and, and whatever and i'd still encourage age groupers in transition if you have to take an extra minute to make sure that you're more comfortable not going to get a blister or something like that then probably do that because you are going to save time but understanding where that line sits and that balance is really important but to go back to so People used to take minutes in these aid stations. The most pin, like crucial aid station where people sort of drop out the most and have the most problems and spend the longest time in UTMB, the leaders went through there in, in less than three minutes this year. And that used to be as long as like 10, 15 minutes for some of them. So you can really see, and Jim Walmsley, who won it, talked about he practiced transitions with his wife who crewed him. They practiced where he held everything. They practiced doing that. He would come in, they would ch- change everything out, and then he would go again. Like That sort of stuff is the difference for some people, right? And it, it wasn't the difference for him. He won by quite a, a margin, but, you know, it's it's real for some people. There is sometimes marginal gains are not so marginal. So you need to understand that. And, and then the counter swing to that is, right, is, is always make sure that you're comfortable, as I said. So so understanding that and how to make those decisions is really important as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think it's useful to think about it as well in terms of, what, how much how much do you have to gain and what do you have what do you have to invest whether it's time or money to gain that and then what are the other options you have where you can gain time so think about transitions maybe you only need to do a couple of transition se- sessions or transition practices which you can do after your bike ride or before it on a saturday the two or three weeks leading up to your race and you could just save a minute and a half in maybe in each transition just with some simple it might not be like you might not get to the point where you're doing the best transition that you could possibly do in your entire life if you just focused on it for a lot longer, which elite athletes obviously do. But but you might get a lot a lot of time there just by the fact that it's something you haven't practiced. So it's more beginner beginner improvements that you're looking at there. But if you if you're looking at well, how am I going to take three minutes off my runtime? Then that that might be just increasing your running volume, which might then have some downsides of increased injury risk or or you don't just not having the time to do that so so it's exactly. uh, yeah it's about weighing the investment with the potential gain how about if i took an hour off my bike time and spread that across a week to do two half hour transition schedules right or two half yeah. hour transition sessions so if you think about that from a time allocation standpoint an hour of easy riding in a, in a big training week let's call you let's say you're training 15 hours plus like it's probably not a great deal to take away from the bike it's probably not going to be noticeable on race day but yeah. the transition time might be so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really cool to hear about UTMB. I, I didn't know. I mean, yeah I, yeah, I didn't know that at all. So that's it sounds like triathlon training almost when he's yeah. in transitions. Of course. And and look, they get really important from different aspects is how do you where do you keep things, how do you throw out garbage, all that sort of stuff. It's I mean, there's it's lots of little things. And I've been part of of crewing at UTMB and it's it's stressful. It's where are we setting up? How are we setting up? How are we going to get the athlete through? What are we changing? How do we make sure they've had enough calories? How do we calculate that? How do we force them to eat a bit? What do they want in this transition? What do we need to have out? Like it's stressful because part of the challenge with UTMB is or something like UTMB is flavor fatigue is so real for trail runners. They're out there for so long. You know, 
we think that Ironman's long at 17 hours or less. UTMB is like 20 hours or more. So you get so much flavor fatigue, so many different things, and people need so many different, you know, there's times a day, there's climatic issues. So do they want something warm or cold? Are they going to be hot or cold? Do we, you know, in this tactical aspect of changing headlights, do we give them the heavy headlights or the light ones? Because they have to have a headlight at all times, but they don't need to run with a heavy one if they're not going to use it. There's all this stuff. I mean, the optimization is is awesome. Yeah, yeah, that is cool, but it's also very intense. <laughs> oh, yes. Anything else that comes to mind? Any other interesting observations you have about triathlon training performance i think i mean swimming is interesting you've had episodes on this and i you know i was i think i gave myself a concussion from nodding so hard at the time talking about swim training and i just find it really interesting how we break swim training up everything gets broken up into almost sprint intervals of hundreds of meters or five you know something like that and i just i don't think people are doing that much swimming that's long so call it 400 meters plus intervals. And I don't think people are swimming open water, even though they have access to it at some points. And I think those two things, again, compare that to say cycling or run training where they're doing these longer blocks of work. They're just not doing that in the pool and that, or in the open water. And both of those things are really important. And I mean, historically, Australians have swum really well because they spend their lives, you know, the beach swimming and learning surf conditions and, and waves and that sort of stuff. And I think if we saw more true sort of sea swimming, I think that the difference we would see would be even even more. It'd be really interesting to see that and, and the implications of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. But you already see to some extent that some among athletes with a swimming background, the ones that have done a bit more open water swimming, in, which isn't generally the way that the open water swim circuit goes. As far as I'm aware, I'm not following it very closely, but, but most of that is not like big big swell necessarily it's pretty gentle conditions yep. uh, almost like in reservoirs or things yeah, like that yeah, so definitely so so it so it is a bit like pool swimming but you still see that the athletes that have more open water swimming experience rather than just pool swimming experience even though they might be the same speed in the pool you see the advantage that the open water swimmers like lucy charles barclay has so so i i yeah, definitely agree with that and and i think that for age groupers it's it's a lot the, the, the difference is a lot bigger basically than than it might yep. be for professional athletes because they spend so much time in the pool anyway that they're going to get fairly close to their like swim potential in the open water and and we're talking a bit more marginal gains which still make a big difference for them it makes a, a more bigger difference the marginal gains there but yeah for age groupers i definitely think that if you can do more open water swimming then absolutely 100% do that but regardless if you're training for a longer swim then make sure that you swim longer intervals as well yeah i couldn't agree more and then moving on a bit so to follow up on what we talked about a little bit already with the almost opposition of health and performance what would you say then to athletes listening to this that are performance oriented but equally they don't want to compromise their health what, what are the things to keep in mind and consider yeah, I think in this case, I tend to talk to people about the spectrum. So where do you sit on that spectrum, right? So we say that the elite athletes sit on the complete performance spectrum, which is if making any decisions that are in opposition, right? Because some things are aligned. So sleep is aligned. We, we agree that sleep will improve performance and health. So that's not a decision-making point. But there are some decision-making points, right? And so if you get there, you need to understand where that, where you sit on that. Are you 50-50? Is it that you roughly want to perform 50%, but you roughly want to be healthy 50% or are you 60, 40? How are you making, you know, just get a rough idea of where you sit on that spectrum versus say the professional athlete where it doesn't matter. I, I just have to perform, right? I'm, I'm going to sacrifice health. And, and you see this 
you know, they often say, you know, if you could dope and not get caught and you knew it was going to shorten your life, right? There's that famous survey. Would you do it? And most of them say yes, right? So that speaks to how much they want to perform, right? So understand where you are on that spectrum and then use that to as a lens to make your decisions through. So for, for me is a good example. You know, I know that, you know, I've run a, an okay marathon. I know that to get better, I need to do one of a handful of things. The first thing is probably train more. And the second is to probably cut some volume from my upper body in terms of the gym training I do. And I'm not willing to do that from a health standpoint because I think it's really important for bone health and long-term health and those sort of things. So I'm not going to cut that upper body volume. So I'm still quite heavy and big physically for a runner or an endurance athlete in general. I'd probably be big and heavy for a triathlete as well. So that's one of the ways I've made that decision is just health is a priority for me. Let's call it 60-40, maybe even 70-30. And in that la- using that lens, I then made the decision to keep the upper body gym volume rather than let's cut that volume, let's go away from that and, and go you know another way, add a bunch more running volume and, and be done there and, and start to drop muscle mass and, and therefore use that as maybe a, a one strategy to get to get quicker i guess i think that's a that's a great example with the strength training that that does come up with with age group athletes let's say especially the time crunch ones let's say you might have seven eight nine hours to train per week are you then going to spend an hour an hour and a half of that doing strength training if your focus is just being the absolute best athlete you can be then probably i would say no but for, i i still when I in coaching, for example, I coach athletes in this situation, I tend to say that the strength training will be beneficial from a health perspective. And especially if we're talking about athletes of a slightly older age, then the more important it becomes, basically. So then yeah. I, I think for a lot of athletes, it ends up being a yes, even though it might be a bit of a compromise with triathlon performance. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think, yeah, just really being clear on where you lie on that spectrum. And so that's going to affect things like well, you know, and, and life will impact it as well, right? So it's not just going to be health and performance. It's also going to be logistics for some people. So is your priority work? Is it family? Is it all those things? Because there are going to have to be trade-offs. And then just understanding and being really clear on where your priorities lie and therefore how you make decisions based on that. So it's going to impact things like diet. It's going to impact all these other things. You know, some people talk to me, hey, I don't want to have too many gels because I think it's bad for my teeth. And I think it's a really dis- like good discussion to have. But if you want to perform an optimal you need to have those gels because you need to get used to them for race day and you need to be fueling that training in that way. And, you know, you can't probably be eating something more natural like a banana during a run or something like that. So, yeah, th- there's there's lots of ways to make these decisions. And, I mean, to some degree, prolonged mouth breathing through endurance training might be bad for oral health as well, right? So, you may say that you shouldn't be doing a ton of prolonged stuff with an open mouth and, and that might be very reasonable. So, you need to be informed clear on where you lie and then happy with the decisions you make through the lens you make them yeah no that is a very interesting point is there any other thing nutrition wise that that you think are things that people should be aware of other than the dental health potential consequences with having lots of gels and and sports products i mean there's lots of lots of questions at the moment around the health of athletes long term, right? And, and I, I don't really pick sides in this. I find it all interesting around carbohydrate dosing and risk of metabolic health issues as they go forward. And there's an interesting study done recently. The, oh, what's his name? Andrew Kutnick was the lead author, and Tim Noakes is one of the other authors as well on the paper looking at CGMs in athletes and, and risk of diabetes in endurance athletes and switching them over to a higher fat diet and actually move the crossover point for carbohydrate and, pro- and fat as well, which is really interesting. Probably the most interesting part of that paper is I think it was about 85% of VO2 max for the crossover point, which is 
quite significant given the given what Aaron is sending previously. But something like that might be worth considering is if if you do compromise yourself to some degree by high carbohydrate intake during training, is that something you're okay with, right? And would you prefer to switch to something else going to a lower carbohydrate approach? And again, that might concede some performance. And and that's okay if that's the decision you make it through, right? And again, I'm not going to pick sides in that discussion or debate. I'm not going to say any of that's true or false. I'm just saying an if situation, right? Which is if this is going to be the case, which could be the case, then then how do we make that decision? Are you making an informed decision or are you just going in blind and assuming that, you know, a ton of gels are, are healthy and we should be eating, you know, a bowl of gels for breakfast? But yeah, that's kind of probably the only other thing I think about there. Yeah. What about, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but heart health in endurance athletes has been a bit of a topic. Yeah. What What is your understanding of that? I actually saw a conference presentation on this recently and it's something that I'm considering in my own context, if I'm honest, uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, Tim O'Donnell is, is one that comes to mind, right? Where he had, the, uh, he had a heart attack and then he's now back racing. It, I think my read on this has been the same for a long time. And having spoken to one of the cardiologists for Team Netherlands or Team NL recently about this, it basically nets out to the same thing with atrial fibrillation, which is a heart rhythm issue as it does with heart disease, which is the pointy end or excessive. And I think probably excessive is hard to quantify, but I would say probably over 10 hours a week with any intensity in it of pure endurance training is probably like roughly a, a helpful rule of thumb to use. Beyond that, it starts to become perhaps detrimental, but not at the same rate as it was beneficial to start with. That's to say that it does. You do start to see a reversing of that. If we if we start to see an I- improvement in health, you start to see a, an adhere and then a perhaps de- decrement. But it's really about that's you're still going to be in a better position there. And one of the challenges, and I, and I really like this from the cardiologist that he said was, if I take away your marathoning, for instance, when he was talking to me, are you still going to do a similar amount of training? but with less intensity or, or something like that. And I was like, oh, probably not. He's like, yeah, so, so we don't want to take that away because the, the binary option is effectively you're training to a stage that we think is a little bit detrimental versus not training anywhere near enough to, to maximize out your health benefit. So we'd be better off that way. And I think that's probably where most people I speak to sort of end up at or they net out at is, yeah, it's going to be an increased risk, but it's still going to be much better off and I think we're going to start to understand things a little bit better in the next five to 10 years, given the talk I heard from this guy recently. And yeah, I think we'll understand things a bit better. I think we're probably going to get a bit better at treating as well and, and intervening and understanding risk and and tracking risk and what to do with athletes as well. But I do think it's something you should really consider in, in the context of things, especially because a lot of people get into triathlon probably to be healthy, right? They probably were a little bit unhealthy getting into triathlon to be healthy. And then quickly get bitten by the bug and then quickly end up, you know, on, on the hedonic treadmill where they're, you know, now it's, I want to do an Ironman. Now I want to get to Kona. Now I want to perform at Kona. Now I want to run this time at Kona. And, you know, it gets more and more and more and more on the hedonic treadmill. And, you know, you're never really that happy is the other thing. Like whenever you perform, you're, you're happy enough for a while, but you're never really like, there's always another carrot, right? It's the, it's the carrot attached to the stick in front of you, which is like, I can never quite get it. So I think that context is helpful for people to understand as well. Yeah, oh, that is all too true. But just to clarify one thing there. So after 10 hours, if you take that understanding that it's not an exact marker, but, yeah. but after that, you start to see detriment, but, but it's, it's not, you're not talking about a detriment compared to not doing any training, but it's starting to get a little bit less 
beneficial than it was when you were at that optimum. So you're going towards maximum benefit and then you're going back trending at some point towards zero, but that might be at, we don't know exactly what point, but even if you're training 15 hours, you're still getting a positive effect. You're just getting less of a positive effect than you would have at 10 hours. Is that the correct understanding? Yeah. So, I mean, the 10 hours is something I plucked out of the air. So don't, don't quote me on the 10 hours, but let's, let's use 10 hours as a, as a rough line in the sand, I think to, to, to double click for you and to sort of clarify a little bit better. So thank you for the question is the rate of improvement in health overall is significant to a point. It then starts to probably plateau a little bit and then starts to decrease a little bit. But the rate of decrease after that plateau is much less than the increase prior to it. So you're still going to end up, you know, using the 10-hour thing. Yeah, okay, so at 10 hours, we're starting to plateau. At 15, you're not going to be at the same level as you were at five hours. It's probably going to be at something more like nine hours, you know, maybe nine hours, 30. You're starting to really decrease, but it's not at the same rate. And that's probably because we're looking at all-cause mortality. And that is getting death of from anything, which includes getting hit by a car and all those things, right? It's everything. And that decreases. And then it starts to increase a little bit because the risk of specifically cardiac problems, so heart problems, starts to increase a little bit. And then maybe other things as well because of excessive training for whatever reason, right? Like your your chance of getting hit by a car is probably a little bit more if you're cycling for 30 hours a week than if you're cycling for 20 hours a week because it's an area under the curve problem. You're just exposing yep. yourself to more risk. That makes sense. So you you said you call yourself technophile. Let's let's discuss that a little bit more. Let's start with what technology do you use your use yourself in in your training? Well, in training, it's a little bit minimal. But in, it, like, it, what is your technology set that you use? Yeah, or, let's say this gets this gets crazy pretty quickly. I think. And look, one thing I would say is I'm actually pretty conservative in general, and a lot of the stuff I'm doing is because I actually enjoy it. So it's, it's a bit of a hobby for me and it's it's the industry I'm in. So I kind of need to know as well. So I will use that as, a, as my first caveats. But yeah, look, I use a GPS watch, of course, but then my GPS watch is probably older than most. I've had mine for, I think, four plus years now and haven't updated it. So that old. It's a, no, it's, uh, it, it's not at all, but I know people who are updating every year, right? Yeah, so really. let's let's put it this way. There are two models after mine that I currently yeah. have. So so that's enough to to suggest that. And it's no longer supported. They're not updating it anymore. So like let's let's use that as context there. I use a heart rate monitor. We had a discussion the other day offline. I'm in the optical heart rate monitor field. I'm sick of chest straps. I haven't had great great experiences personally with them. But I do think if you're using optical, it has to be an external sensor. It can't be your watch. I think if you're using watch, yeah, give up. I obviously work for Super Sapiens, so I use a CGM. I have an aura ring that I use mostly because I thought, you know, my understanding at the time was that HRV overnight was the same as in the mornings. It definitely isn't, and they don't track the same for everybody. So I now track, well, I also track on the side. I use HRV for training to track my morning heart rate variability, and then I use Rewire Fitness to track some neural markers of fatigue. I then have an eight sleep because that's mostly for, for sleep quality and and my wife sleeps. She wants hot. I want cold. It's 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 good for that. And then I use a velocity based training sensor as well for my gym stuff. And that's like that's really because I enjoy it and it's really interesting and fun. It's not a performance thing. I don't program based on that at the moment. But I, you know, at one point I probably will. 
so that's the most part of my stack i'd say at the moment i've used bits and pieces i've used hydration sensors as well i've used i've played with some dfa alpha one stuff for hrv looking at intensity i've done a bunch of other things i use the rewire buttons as well for some neuro fitness training and mental fatigue stuff so i'll play with pretty much anything and then the stuff that lasts is stuff i either really enjoy or am seeing benefit from and, and making decisions based off yeah what about lactate the hot topic in the last couple of years I mean, I went through a sports science degree, so I did in you know in the early 2000s, I was taking lactates and doing a bunch of them. I don't do a lot myself with lactate. I probably will at one point, but it's probably not going to change a lot of what I do. I think I my training is climatically very consistent, and that is I don't travel a lot. I'm not in different locations. So as a result, I can get it really dialed in on intensity based on heart rate and RPE. And I think that's, you know, talking to some of the world's best triathletes and best athletes in general the whole goal of training with data is to not then have to use it on race day and to dial in your feeling. And the more and more I read about the stuff, the more and more I realize that the complex integration of everything is done by the brain. And if you can dial that in, then that's really important. You know, when I was a teenager before GPS watches were a thing, I used to run with a guy who could tell you how far you'd run and what pace you were running at. And he was like a clock. I kid you not. He would be able to tell you we'd be running track reps and he would be saying we're running at, you know, 65 pace and we would be. I could never do that. And I still to this day can't really do that. I can kind of do it maybe on a road with some paces I'm pretty used to. I can definitely do it roughly in zone stuff. So zone one, two, three, using a three zone model, I can pretty much do that. I mean, zone three is not real hard, but you know, I can kind of, I've got a pretty good handle on that and, and using heart rate to triangulate that stuff. So that's probably, yeah, that's probably why I haven't used a lot of lactate, but it, it is something I'm really interested in. Obviously, continuous lactate monitors are coming. I'm really interested in, in seeing that data. I've got a feeling that it's going to confuse people a lot more bef- than before it gets to anything else. I think people are going to get a continuous lactate monitor and think, yeah, this is going to be just like my lactate curve. It's just going to be just like capillary lactate from a finger or an earlobe. And it, it's just not. It's measured in a different fluid, a different part of the body with different metabolism. So there's going to be an onboarding curve for the industry as well as the, the end user that'll be pretty steep, I think. So let's use that as an example because I was going to ask what what is what, what would a good approach be for anybody trying to approach any new piece of technology. If we use continuous lactate monitoring as an example, when whenever it comes to market, how would you approach it when when you start using it and and trying to figure it out and and learn how to actually benefit from it? So I'd put it into context. So what is lactate, right? Why do we measure it at all? So that's probably the first thing is to understand what you're actually measuring and why. Because if you're just measuring it for fun, that's fine. Go for it and enjoy it, right? And I, I do this for some of it. But understand what you're trying to get from it. What informationally are you trying to get from it? And where does that sit in, in your understanding and your system of, of how you prescribe or modify training or all those things, right? Because it's not going to sit in the same plot, spot for everybody. So we talked about Norwegian method. You know, Famously, they use lactate perhaps for intensity control. Other people will use it for other reasons, right? It might be to, to test how tough a session is, to understand marathon pace, whatever whatever it is. So understand where it sits and what you're trying to gain from it. Then you probably need to do a period of time where you do nothing with the data and just observe it to try and understand it in the context of what you understand already. So in my case, that would be if you think this is zone one, right, in a three zone model, go out and test and see what that lactate looks like. How does that lactate look over a period of time, be it half an hour, hour, two hours at that intensity, right? What are the, what are the lactate kinematics doing? And then do the same for zone two, 
the same for zone three and do that over and over again and then do some traditional ramp tests and do all that stuff. So you just got to collect a bunch of data so you understand the scenarios so that you understand what you're seeing in the context of what you already understand. So if we think about a, a traditional understanding of a lactate curve, it's classically the you know the parabola that starts to go up, you know, at zone two is here or in the five zone model or you know the top of zone one in a in the three zone model sits here, LT1, whatever you want to call it, LT2 sits here. This is maximum lactate steady state. What does that all look like with continuous lactate monitor, not earlobe or finger lactate? Or you collect them both and understand them in the context of each other. But I would say that that's pretty fraught with fraught with challenge because they're going to be so different that the the like the kinematics of the two will be very different. Because in one of the settings, you're seeing the outcome at earlobe or finger of whole body metabolism of lactate, whatever that looks like, the production, the metabolism, the use, you know, and then whatever's left, whereas the other one will be in a different spot. And so the blood flow will be different and the resulting lactate will be different. I guarantee you if you put a continuous lactate monitor on a quad and on a tricep and you're running, they would look different. Those those things will be different. And what's important is then to understand what's important for you as the end user and how you would use that data. So if it's for intensity control, think about that. And if it's for you know something else, then then think about it in that context. Yeah, I think you touched on a few really important points there. First of all, not trying to act on the data before you really understand it. So so that's a, a really good one. And then the, the flip side of that is that this is something that I I do think is quite quite common as well, is that people get devices, gadgets, and, and they never get to the point of actually using it, which is, again, it can be fine if, if you're just using it because you like it and it's interesting to see. But but that's sometimes where we can get into a false sense of technology actually helping, but are are you actually using using it? Are you taking action on it? So so if you want the technology to be useful for you, then you need to first just learn how it works, learn understand it well, but then actually know what is the action that you want to take from the information that that it provides. So so it is definitely again, it's an investment not just in the sense that you buy the technology but learning to understand it investing the time in in yep. in collecting data in understanding the context of it all and uh, and then it can start to be be useful hopefully yeah that's that's actually two of the things i didn't really mention was exactly that which is there is going to be a cost financial but also opportunity costs what are you going to not be doing when you're understanding that data or all those things so of course Maybe for some people it's leisure, like me. So, so it's fun and, and fine. I'm happy to spend that time. But if it's time away from something that really matters, family or other data that that is a signal, not noise, for you, then you need to keep that in context. And maybe this is where the big data algorithms and AI approach sort of helps us. So we can just pile this all into a model, and it can interpret it for us at one point. I'd also say, like, understand the limitations of what you're measuring. And and so I gave the example before of risk-based heart rate for PPG sensors. If you understand what it's measuring, it makes complete sense why the wrist isn't a great place to measure that. It's measuring changes in light fundamentally. Your, your watch moves on your wrist, your wrist moves around, the capillaries, arteries, etc., veins, blood flow to the skin, all changes in the wrist because of movement. So when you're measuring it at a different spot, be it bicep or fore, that's a lot more consistent. So it makes sense. So it's not that it's inaccurate at the wrist, it's that it's a bad spot to measure it. So I actually wouldn't be taking a continuous lactate monitor and comparing it to capillary lactate because you're measuring two different things. You're, you're grading an apple on its ability to be an orange. It just isn't that. Yes, they're both fruit, but apples aren't oranges. 
you're looking at something different. So we see this a lot with continuous glucose monitoring. People go, oh, it's not the same as my finger stick. It's like, yeah, it's not meant to be. Now, of course, for people with diabetes, the lens has always been understanding glucose through that lens, which is finger stick and, and diabetes. But in people without diabetes, it's completely different. And interstitial glucose, where it's measured in the back of the tricep, might actually be more helpful in some respects. It's just different. It's completely different kinematically, particularly during exercise. So understanding that context is really important. It doesn't mean it's good, bad, or different. It's just, well, it, it just is different, I guess. It's not good or bad. It's just different data. And so that's kind of how I would think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's another example is the muscle oxygen saturation measurements that yep. the are relatively popular now i guess like not not so much that like a lot of people have them but but they get talked about quite a fair bit and and even some people have talked about yeah they used to be all in on lactate but now they're using muscle oxygen saturation and and i understand why because it, it can it, it is in the same way a measure of internal stress in a way but it, it it does it it measures something completely different in a completely different way so when you're doing let's say a ramp test with with a moxie or another muscle oxygen saturation device then you shouldn't expect to see something that looks like a lactate curve because it's measuring something completely different so you have have to kind of approach from the perspective of okay i'm learning something completely new here and and not not try to translate it into like lactate parlance if continuing on, on with that example but but understanding it for what it is and also understand what's being measured and what's being interpreted from that so yeah. things like respiratory rate are a good example. Respiratory rate is often measured as a result of heart rate and sino, I can't remember the, it's sinoatrial something. I can't remember the exact name there, my apologies. But basically your heart beats slightly differently as a result of your breath. And so as a result, we can interpret what your respiration rate is from that. That's not quite the same as actual respiration rate. So there are these respiration shirts, which I think use stretch sensors instead. So now it's looking at expansion of the chest wall. Now that's different, right? But again, if you're doing strength training with them, maybe you need to consider the the implications for noise in that given that you're contracting muscles. So just understanding what you're doing, how things are being measured and what's being interpreted from that is really, really important. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Do you have any any additional advice on that topic or should we move on to the next one? I think probably the only other thing is understanding where you want to sit on the adoption curve, right? So there are early, early adopters they're the first people to do it. You've got to be okay with products being pretty average in that space, particularly if it's a startup. They're just going to be bad and that's the goal and they need people to use them and to get better. Or do you want to be a late adopter? I don't understanding what the implications of this are, right? And you're going to have to be a lot more, spend a lot more time if you're an early adopter than a late adopter. So just understanding where you want to be on that curve from a time as well as financial resources point of view. So I'm often quite late on some of this stuff, despite being a technophile. Some of it makes a lot of sense, stuff that I've been waiting for. And then some of it, I'm quite late stuff that I'm not so sure about. So Mox is a great example. I haven't touched it yet. Super keen now. But to this point, I've been very late onto it, right? Whereas other people have been using it for ages. Yeah. Yeah, we can have a discussion on, on that off air. I don't have a Moxie to be fair, but I have a muscle oxygen saturation device and I haven't used it much to be fair because I just didn't find it particularly useful. I understand that some of that is just that I need to use it more and I haven't I haven't invested my time into into it into the actual logistics of measuring it and uh, and then getting the data into a convenient format and, and all of that but that's that's just the the challenge with a lot of these technologies that it is so much more than just putting a device on your on your body and then 
you get some some new insights that you didn't have before that's that's not what you should expect with with anything really even if it's something that measures things very accurately getting to actual insights is completely different yeah exactly and and everyone wants that all seeing all knowing dashboard right all my wearables get integrated so i can see all the data in one spot but that from a tech point of view is really difficult to do for lots of reasons that sit with different companies and all that sort of stuff. But for the most part, that's very difficult. That's why things like Training Peaks and Strava tend to have a bit of an aggregator function for people. But having that data together is is the sort of panacea. And there are many companies building these dashboards, but they're just difficult and expensive to build because every time anybody updates anything, they've got to spend a bunch of money to keep up to date. So they, unless you win that game and no one else is there, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So... Moving on a little bit, we have talked about a few areas, including training and health and technology, that there is a lot of talk about and a lot of uh, information about online and social media and, and everywhere. But there's also a lot of misinformation and sometimes even like pseudoscience. So how do you think, what is your advice for how people should navigate this landscape it goes back a little bit to what you said about how you see that sports science degrees need to be updated like it's yep. not about finding information it's about filtering information yeah i think probably the the if i had to give a one answer one word summary or one word answer here is carefully so you navigate it carefully i think look there's a lot of negativity towards marketing and i'll be really clear that's part of my role at super sapiens is marketing right and and people can throw the stones i want to throw but what i would say is i think everybody could be better at marketing and should learn more about marketing that's from a coaching point of view because getting marketing is fundamentally storytelling and, and getting buy-in from people and i think from a coach's perspective getting people to buy into your program even if they're already paying you is huge and i've seen huge improvements in buy-in from athletes create huge successes in their performance with the same or a worse program. So I would say that for the most part, and, and then likewise for health, from a health perspective, if we could somehow market a healthy diet and physical activity, the world would be a better place, right? So let's, let's be clear that marketing isn't all bad. And I think it gets a bit of a bad rap, but you make a good point, which is that it, things can be over-marketed or marketed in a questionable way. And I think that's, you've got to be able to see through that. I think, again, you probably need to understand some of the stuff a little bit to a little bit of, of a deeper level. So you, you need a level of like literacy in the space. I think that would help it. There's a concept from thinking fast and slow. I'm not sure if you know the book by Daniel Kahneman, yeah. it's heavy read, but great read. And I think they, they talk about thick slicing and thin slicing. I think if you can spend the time to thin slice it and really dig in and understand it, then it will be helpful. If not, and you want a thick slice and, and really set, use a rule of thumb is probably ask somebody who does spend that time, right? This is why people like the DC Rainmaker have followings because he spends time really evaluating the tech and its accuracy and those sort of things. So I think outsourcing to there and we're, we're in a pretty good spot and you need to think about incentives in that context as well for why these people are doing what they're doing and trying to find somebody that you really benefit there. The other thing, I mean, I don't know if you've heard of the Lindy effect, but it's something a mentor of mine brought up to me that, that I've sort of used as well, as well. And I think it's, pretty helpful in, in all things training, but definitely in tech. And the basically the linear effect states that a theorized phenomenon by which the future life expectancy of some non-perishable things, like a technology or an idea, is proportional to its current age, which basically means something that's been around for a long time has probably survived for a reason, and it will probably also keep being around for a long period of time versus something that's new. Maybe you want to be a little bit more careful on it. So lactate's a great example. It's been around for decades, so it's probably not going anywhere. Now, of course, a continuous lactate monitor might be different, 
and that's worth a discussion, but lactate as a concept and using it isn't new. So it's probably more robust as something to use, same with heart rate and those sort of things, versus the new thing, maybe let's call it muscle oxygenation, where in 10, 15 years it may not be around because people go, well, actually, it's not better than lactate. Let's just do lactate. It's easier, right? Yeah. So that that's the kind of the Lindy effect, and, and maybe that's one of the things you want to want to use there. I remember when kettlebells became big in, in gyms at a certain point, my mentor said, yeah, it's not surprising, and they're going to stay around because they were around with the Soviets in the – whatever in the, I don't even know when they started, but that's a good example of something that could have been a fad, but hasn't really been a fad as much as it stayed around because there is some value to it. So perhaps that's, perhaps that's helpful. And then the other thing I was thinking about is using a couple of other lenses. So what if I'm wrong? So what are the consequences of being wrong in either direction? So what if I don't start using Moxie and it's helpful? Or what if I do start using it and it's not helpful, right? What are the, what are the consequences of being wrong in those ways? And what's the cost versus being wrong versus right, right? So if I don't use Moxie, what's the cost of being wrong? Well, yeah, I haven't bought it yet, so I'm a bit behind with my training. And what's the cost of being wrong if if it, if it isn't useful? It's like, well, the cost of a Moxie monitor. Right? And I don't want to throw stones at Moxie. I'm absolutely not. It's just a helpful example we've been talking about in, in this podcast. But, you know, to use a similar way of thinking here, when I was sitting doing some game analysis for a rugby team I was coaching just before the pandemic hit, I was sitting in a cafe. I'll never forget the day. I remember exactly where I was sitting. A friend of mine was living in China at the time, working for the Chinese Olympic organization. And he texted me and said, mate, this stuff is real. Buy a bunch of you know, hand sanitizer, masks, whatever, before it really gets to be a problem there because it is going to be a problem there. And I remember sitting there thinking at the time, well, how do I make this decision? Because I wasn't so sure about it and it didn't feel like it was going to be a big deal at the time. This is you know, just before everything really kicked off and borders closed. And I was like, and I was like, well, if I'm wrong here and I buy a bunch of stuff, I've spent you know, 50, 60, 80 euros or whatever. And that's not a big consequence for me where I'm at at the moment. Whereas if I'm wrong and, and this stuff is out of date and it's a real risk for my family and I, then it's a big consequence. So I, I made that purchase right then and there. I was like, easy. You know, sometimes these decision-making lenses can help people, I guess. And, and that's just, you know, another example of it. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. Then another topic that I want to get to you, and I feel like you have a lot of great insight on this as well, is about weight. So I, I see you smiling there. <laughs> it's yeah. a podcast, the listeners can't see you. But yeah, what 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 are your thoughts around weight in endurance sports? Yeah, I think it's it's touchy, right? And I think one of the problems we have is that it's hard to talk about, right? Weight is is taboo. It's hard to talk about, especially you know I want to be sensitive. This is two guys speaking on a podcast, right? And of course, weight is obviously something that is sometimes perceived to be more pertinent to females, uh, although not the case. We're starting to see increased awareness of relative energy deficiency in men as well and i think it's 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 a healthy conversation to have because i think the more we can all have it the better off everybody is but i think like there's just this obsession with being lighter in endurance sport and power to weight ratios and i'm just i'm not as convinced that it's that linear i'm not saying it doesn't matter at all but i think the view in endurance sport is like this is completely linear if i lose a kilogram i'll be x amount faster and it just i don't think it is we're not perfect machines it's not a linear thing. There are any number of systems that require this. Mood is one of them, right? If you're not as happy, but you're a little bit lighter, will you race better? Well, probably not. What about, you know, there's the endocrine system exists as well, and that exists to both try and help maintain a weight that you're at, but also exists in a more, you know, complex balance. And this is the system that gets disrupted with relative energy deficiency, for instance, the menstrual cycle, which is an endocrine function and all those things as well. So I just think, it's not as simple as let's get lighter. And I think a lot of people would be better off understanding the training constraints that they need 
and trying to optimize the ins, which is my training and my diet, and then let the out level out for itself. Yeah, I think I think that's a great answer. And also going to say, yeah, I have mentioned before on the podcast about like hearing about world class athletes, triathletes that basically started growing again in their early twenties after like stopping growing many many years before but then just due to a change in in eating habits in nutrition so so i think a lot of athletes are i think we're just starting to hear about these these and I, because i heard another example just yet, literally this morning i think or was it yesterday somebody who in their mid-20s grew five centimeters in in a few months when they started like eating more gaining gaining some weight but also gained a significant amount of height as 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 a mid in the in their mid twenties, so so I think that it's just something that we yeah as, as you, I think I think that the thing is we we as you say we are obsessed a bit with getting lighter and then it's going to get better, and that sometimes leads us to take unhealthy decisions. It comes back to what you what we we're talking about before about health in a way, but I think I think we yeah we don't really understand the performance side as well as we think we do with lighter being better because as you say it's probably it, it isn't that's my my coaching experience i'm i'm saying it as a hard statement almost even though this is not something that like it's i haven't seen like directly started or anything but my coaching experience is that it's it's very difficult to say that getting lighter would make you faster and, and sometimes you see the exact opposite happen where where putting on some weight can can make you faster and that goes across swimming biking and running potentially or it can go across at least two of the sports and the third one is neutral so yeah um, i mean yeah. F- for me personally i ran some of my fastest times when i was significantly lighter than where i am and then some of my fastest times now in in similar distances and you go okay well you've advanced as an athlete you're like yeah exactly right and that's part of the problem here is a lot of people have this view of i was x weight when i ran well or or ran this great time in a triathlon or did this great time in a triathlon but they, there's this famous statement is, you know, no man walks through the same river twice because he's changed and so is the river. And I think it's really important to remember that is your body adapts. That's what training's about. The whole goal is for your body to adapt. So it's a different thing every day. You know, those changes are very small day to day, but over years it's big. So yeah, okay, when you're in high school and you ran well, you're at this weight, you're not the same. Your skeleton weighs a different amount. Your liver weighs a different amount. All those things weigh a different amount, right? So the scale is just a really coarse instrument as well. I just don't think it's that helpful. We, we've got a, you know, one of the blogs on Super Sapiens is about, I think it's called the fallacy of race weight. And if you look in there, you'll see my race, my, my weight data. And I tracked it pretty much every day for like two months or something like that. And you can see the fluctuations. And, you know, these are probably glycogen and as a result, some fluid as well. But it's like some of that can be pretty disheartening. So I just, I think you've got to be understanding of what you're going to do with that data if you're going to track it but i just think the scale is a really coarse tool that is probably overused and and not as helpful as it could be the people who know in this space usually suggest to me that not to me directly but they suggest that you take you weigh yourself however much however frequently you want to do it and try and standardize that as much as possible and then use monthly averages that should tell you enough about how coarse a tool it is right if you can't see any signal in a day-to-day or a week-to-week variance and it has to be at a month level then it's very noisy data. Yeah, yeah, and no, that's that's absolutely true. And yeah, I've I almost stopped, not completely stopped using it, but use it very. I, I guess my the mistake that I'm doing is that I'm I don't have a I have a standardized way, and it's always in the morning. But I don't have a standardized that oh I do it 
the first three days of every month or something like that that could be maybe smart smart to do or the first five days of every month and then you just use that but yeah it's just very irregular and so i don't really know my weight now and or i don't know it as well as i used to anyway when i was tracking it more regularly and i don't feel like i'm missing any information that i really need to need to know well so, what's it gonna what's it gonna change i think you've had yeah. someone i think it was was it i think you had somebody on it, it might have been on your podcast with the guy sort of he sort of said like what's it going to make you feel if you get on it it says a different number and, and what's it going to make you change yeah. but even if that's not the case i think for endurance athletes i would say you need to standardize it but you probably need to standardize it around training as well because i'll tell you now if you've used a bunch of glycogen it's going to take you some time to really replenish that because most people aren't going to replenish that over a 24-hour window so if it's the day after a long training block it's probably going to be lighter and then you know if you happen to weigh the first day of next month if you're doing the first day of the month if the first day of the next month is after a rest day then it's going to look different so sure. understand in context of training as well it's a time of the day bowel movements bladder but then also training weeks and that sort of stuff so you know that in my perfect world if i was given you know if i was uh, for a day or whatever and given a magic wand to wave everyone would get weighed every day and no one would see any of that data. And we would just report on roughly big trends like, hey, you're trending down or you're trending up. And we would also have ideas around muscle mass as well. Because this is the elephant in the room is body composition can change and weight can stay the same. So yeah. I think that's, it's, you know, it's a course tool. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. There was one one other thing that I was going to say. Oh, yeah. So when you when you talked about people saying that, oh, my my ideal race weight is X, because I used to run some fast times. What what we often what often happens, I feel, again, just coaching experience is that an athlete can come to me and say that, oh, yeah, I used to run this this time for a 5K or for a marathon, but I was this weight. It was three kilos lighter or whatever it is. But then I got injured and now I'm a bit heavier, so now I need to get back. Well, maybe 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 these are not unrelated incidents. Maybe there is some some correlation there as well between getting injured and and the weight. So maybe maybe it shouldn't be seen as automatic that you need to get back to your lightest weight before you got injured when you when you run some fast times maybe maybe it's more about fo- again focusing on being injury free first as we kind of started the podcast talking about i think uh, yeah. there's actually a paper on this i'll give it i'll send it to you to, to put in the show notes here but I, i've i've re- assumed it recently but long and the short of it is there's actually a positive adaptation. This is part of the problem that we see with Red S and why it probably is such a big deal is there's actually a period of time where you do perform better when you're under fueling and your body composition is changing and you can perform for a period of time. And evolutionarily, this makes some sense. Although I don't like the naturalistic explanations of things, it does make some sense is when there's a period of low food, you do need to be able to perform for a period of time, but then eventually you do end up injured, right? And that's exactly what you're seeing. Exactly what's happening is you go through a period where there's you are seeing a little bit of a benefit and then all of a sudden, okay, now you have a problem. Now you have a bone stress injury. Now you have to take time off. And then the rebound from that's often hard for lots of reasons, psychological, emotional, trusting your body, all that stuff. So yeah, it's just a fool's errand, right? We've got to keep in context what we're training for. And for most people on some level, that's health. And health isn't about being underfueled. Yeah, no, for sure not. So let's take one more question before the rapid fire questions. And that is about strength and conditioning, concurrent training for endurance athletes. We've talked about this a little bit. You have some thoughts on what the evolution and the future of strength and conditioning for endurance athletes and, and runners in particular, I guess, might look like. So what are those thoughts? Yeah, I think, look, much to my dismay, I don't think 
strength training is going to be as big a deal in, in in the future for runners. I think we're just seeing too many runners succeed without a great deal of it. And I say much to my dismay because I love it. I, there's nothing I love more than spending time in the gym with a barbell in hand. So I, I drink that Kool-Aid, so to speak. But I think if I was to future cast and looking at the current state of the trends, information, that sort of stuff, and thinking about the trickle from team sports and what they look like into non-team sports and, and some of the stuff I'm seeing at institutes and of sport or whatever, I think what we're going to end up with is we're already probably leaning towards more plyometrics than some, although there is some still some heavy strength training, but I think we're going to see more plyometric emphasis and then we're going to see an emphasis on isometrics, particularly there's a, a guy called Alex Natera who does a, a bunch of what he calls run-specific isometrics. Really interesting stuff. There's some, some cool stuff on Sportsmith about it, but in short, if you think about what we're trying to train, a lot of the time it's not so much the muscle as much as it is the tendon and isometrics and plyometrics function around that that structure a lot more. I also think that particularly isometrics are not particular uh, are not very taxing for the body and so recovery off the back of them is a lot easier. And so training load around modification of that isn't isn't as big a deal. So I think isometrics are going to be a big portion of this and and this isn't hey, I'm standing on the edge of the step and, and holding myself up there. It's no, I'm pushing as hard as I can against an immovable object. So it looks a bit different to what people are used to as well. And then I think we're probably going to start to see the use of more blood flow restriction training. And I think there's some cool uses here. I mean, the, the research is in its infancy, although it is quite old. I think for an athletic population, it's in a bit more of its infancy and in our understanding of it. But I think we'll start to see some more of this, uh, particularly at the moment, it's going to be used to come back from injury, but I think in the medium to long term, there may be a role for low-intensity training with blood flow restriction and, and perhaps some peripheral adaptations that we're not otherwise used to and trying to augment some of that, particularly maybe in people who are perhaps transitioning sports or who are maybe not as peripherally efficient, so to speak, or, or maybe that's their, their rate limiter is more peripheral and central adaptations, perhaps have a big VO2 max and, and a, a, a less good economy, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And uh, then let's move into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? So I'm not going to say endure, although I do love the book. If you are interested in a, a book on running that is great, I would recommend The Perfect Mile. It's a story about the first time the four-minute mile was run. So definitely have a look at that from more of a storytelling perspective. But in terms of true training, Probably showing my strength and conditioning roots here. There's a book called Super Training. It's by Mel Siff and Yuri Verkashansky. And it's just unbelievable from an understanding of the body and adaptation timelines and apl application of stimulus and periodization and all that stuff, right? So it's it's not as much about endurance training. It's more strength training, but there is some endurance in there. And I think it's, I think many endurance coaches would gain a lot from reading the book. And it is not an easy read, I would say, though. It has been mentioned before, but it has been a while ago. So, so it's good to bring that bring that one up again. I might have heard that. I, it seemed a bit familiar, but anyway, I'm stoked to hear that someone else has mentioned it. Yeah. What's an important habit that you've benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally? Yeah, I'd say it's probably discipline and consistency, like that sort of combination. It's it's a comment I get from from many people, be it that it's meticulous with my my loading or, or something else, but it's that consistency. I think it's probably the thing for me. So, yeah. It's a good one. And who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Jeez, there's a lot here. I'm going to go with some, yeah. So Bruce Lee for his, probably for his philosophy. So his absorb what's useful, discard what's not, and, you know, and make what's, make it uniquely your own. I think that sort of speaks to me from my, the, the way I think about coaching perhaps. And then Killian Jornet, just from his self-experimentation and his engagement in his own training, I think as a coach looking at that, 
thinking about an athlete, that's sort of something I really enjoy is like how engaged he is in that process. And obviously he's self-coached, but I think that sort of thing is, it speaks to me in terms of wanting to find out about your own body and self-experimentation. And that's just a lot of why I train now is, is trying to learn and trying to then bring that to other people, I suppose. Yeah, that's great. And finally, where can people find you and mention your podcast again so they can have a look, check those out? Yeah, as, as you sort of well said, so the Super Sapiens podcast, I know you listen every now and again, I get a text from you. So thank you for that, Michael. So of course, Super Sapiens podcast, we've got some guests on there, talk a little bit about continuous glucose monitors and as well. Pro Running News podcast, as I said, those are both on podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, etc. I'm on Instagram. Uh, if you want to come follow me there, mostly at the moment, it's stories about my French bulldog and then the occasional photo of a race bib. So that's DLipman5. I'm on Twitter. I retweet a little bit, engage a little bit there, although I tend to censor myself quite a bit. So that's DJ underscore Lipman. Sorry, it's on X now and on Twitter. I mean, otherwise, yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Strava if you're that interested, but it's not super exciting. I'm, I'm coming back. So uh, yeah, acute injury, not a chronic one, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, that's a good clarification. Uh, yeah. And I know on Twitter, there are sometimes some drafts being written that are not being published. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my response or, or tweet or whatever, X is whatever they're called now, to actual drafting ratio is probably like one is to 99. I, yeah, I don't, I don't do a lot there. And sometimes I'll just DM people and a response because I think we're in a challenging time where things are taken out of context quickly and, and people's opinions are, are not well received in good faith so i tend to not so you're welcome to send me you know reach out to me those my dms are open on all those things if you want to talk and and we can i can share my email or whatever so happy to have those discussions in a respectful way where we're trying to i guess i i i I am happy to discuss things with people i'm not happy to argue with people now if we both turn up with our respective opinions want to hear each other and are open to changing our minds i'm happy to have that discussion where we both turn up with our opinions, we yell at each other and we're never going to change our minds. That's an argument. I'm not really there anymore. I don't I don't have the time for it. So happy to discuss things with people. I won't argue with them though. Yeah, well, that's why that's why I like to, to discuss with you about things that th- things that I'm thinking about. And yeah, you're really great at, at dis- actually discussing topics. And I've learned a, a ton from you as well. So I appreciate you both for the podcast and on the podcast, but also uh, just in general. So I think you know, we can all learn a lot from, from each other. So we should be trying to do more of that and spending more time asking, you know, what if I'm wrong rather than convincing ourselves that we were right. Yeah, totally. Okay. Thank you so much, Dave. And I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Talk soon. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com with all of the relevant links that we mentioned. Do check out uh, Dave's podcast, both the Super Sapiens podcast and Pro Running News. There are some great episodes on both of those podcasts. So uh, they are podcasts that I regularly tune into both of them. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and uh, level up to achieve your next goal, there's probably no single better thing that you can do than to get some expert help along the way. And at Scientific Triathlon, we provide coaching services that cater to every need from beginners to professionals, where the athlete is in the center, the coaching is grounded in communication and individualization, and the coaches all have a wealth of experience, knowledge, and coaching skills. If coaching is out of your budget or not for you, then we also have ready-made training plans for different athlete levels and goal events, and hundreds, if not thousands of athletes have already set big pbs and reached new performance levels with these plans they also have exchange and or money back guarantees so it's a risk-free investment you can find out all about our coaching training plans customized training plans and consultation options on scientifictriathlon.com and to discuss your options you can email me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com
Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. Use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Senate workout done at home that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order at senatesimpair.com for slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.